we acknowledge the Wajak people and the wider Noongar community uh, on whose country we conduct our meditation and our ceremonies this evening. This is the Dharma talk. The Zen way and care for the environment. Uh, please sit comfortably. We have the best model for care of the environment known to humanity, indeed the many beings, right here in Australia. Bruce Pascoe's 2014 book, Dark Emu, Black Seeds, Agriculture or Accident, makes this clear. Um, a wonderful book, a revolutionary. The theme of the book is for 65,000 years, as good as forever, Aboriginal communities Australia-wide live sustainably, building dams and wells, planting, irrigating and harvesting seed, preserving the <coughs> surplus and storing it in houses, sheds or secure vessels, creating elaborate ceremonies and shaping the landscape and making it sustainable uh, by means of fire stick farming and many <coughs> other means. So if you want a model for, uh, for sustainability, uh, you have one here. It's been going for 65,000 <coughs> years. Um, so it's good to, to get to know that. It's good to, um, to know our place, as Mary Ridwin uh, puts it. Aboriginal people cared for this country in a way that brings the practical and spiritual into the deepest alliance. Uh, there's not that split that is so much a feature of the West between spirituality and practicality, uh, for instance. Spirituality, as in Zen, is deeply invested in the most humble of our activities. Uh, Bruce Pascoe, None but Bruce Pascoe, who's an Australian Indigenous writer from the Bunurong clan of the Kulin Nation, who's worked as a teacher, farmer, fisherman and an Aboriginal language researcher. Okay. Kind of wide field of uh, experience in that. <coughs> uh, none of what he has uncovered, often from the journals of the first explorers, fits the notion of Aboriginal people as merely hunter-gatherers, which was a notion used by white society to justify the theft of Aboriginal people's land. Uh, if you're uh, just travelling across country to get to the next kangaroo uh, and uh, you have no deeper relationship to the land, then it makes it so vulnerable to some kind of terranalius, which is what tended to happen. I'm grateful to Michael Wright for his gift of the book, uh, Dark Emu, and for a ticket to the Bangara Dance Company's production, <coughs> Dark Emu, which is an interpretation of Pascoe's book, Per Medium of Dance. The dance work, Dark Emu, segues from fire to feast, 
stone rituals, massacre, sea, sky, and singing up the land. There is no principal dancer in the company's productions. Uh, Bangara moves as a mob. Some critics complain, this is what um, Stephen Page, who's the head of Bangara Dance Company, um, says. Some critics complain they can't tell if these dancers are elements, earth, water, fire, air, or humans. Stephen Page uh, responds to this criticism, what do you mean? We are both. Uh, that sets up uh, themes for, the, uh, for tonight. So it's good to know our place, to draw strength and inspiration from that knowledge and to acknowledge our debt and express thanks and gratitude to the Aboriginal people who have lived here forever. Uh, for this talk, I'm also grateful to David Loy, whose work I've drawn on. Um, most recently, David is visiting Namata Professor of Buddhism at the University of Calgary, as well as being an author, Zen teacher in the Sunbo Kyodan tradition. Uh, that's our parent uh, tradition. David began Zen practice in 1971 at a session in Honolulu led by Yamada Koan Roshi. And, and he did Koan study with Yamada and with Robert Aiken. Uh, in 1984, he moved to Kamakura, uh, Japan, to continue intensive practice with Yamada. He finished the formal uh, Koan curriculum in 1988 and was given the Dharma name Tetsu-un, Wisdom Cloud. And uh, he and Mary uh, trained at the same time with Yamada, so it's a wonderful family uh, connection uh, here. Family connections just keep rolling. Um, I also want to acknowledge uh, Robert Aiken Roshi, of all the founding, who was my first teacher. Of all the founding teachers in the West, Roshi is the one who most ardently advocated social justice, especially for gay people, women and native Hawaiians throughout his life. Uh, Roshi with Anne Aiken was one of the original founders of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Social activism was at the core of Roshi's life and his teaching. He stressed the ethical aspects of the way through the precepts and his book, The Mind of Clover, is the finest book that we have on the precepts from a Zen Buddhist perspective. And there are marvellous essays, um, Dogen and, uh, uh, and Ecology, um, Religious Activism and the Tao, all of which are highly relevant uh, for, um, for the, the ground of activism. And I recommend them to you. In this talk, I'll present some archetypal Buddhist themes that bear on the activist way. In doing this, I'm beginning to lay the ground for uh, our Dharma and Ecology Retreat on December the 15th and 16th at Hovia Ashram. A retreat with many workshops exploring um, uh, Dharma and the ecology, uh, climate change and many other uh, topics. 
tonight is broad brushstrokes, um, the big themes. Uh, subsequent talks will explore those in more detail. The universe and its unfolding and all beings, including us within it, is more than sufficient ground for the Zen way, which presents a cooperative, living, vital vision of the universe, where we are not lords of creation and nature is in no way beholden to us. In terms of life here on this planet, we can say from a Zen perspective that nature and humanity are completely interdependent. More precisely, it's impossible to conceive of humanity without the natural world and indeed the universe at large. There's a beautiful saying, um, there is no person without a world. It makes for a fine uh, kind. Anne Carson, the Canadian poet, wrote that. There is no person without a world. Lawrence Krauss in his book, A Universe from Nothing, writes, Happily for us, stars don't explode that often, about once per hundred years per galaxy. Actually, according to David Blair on ABC Radio last night, that number is much larger, uh, with uh, better detection these days. But Krauss says, One of the most poetic facts I know about the universe is that essentially every atom in your body was once inside a star that exploded. Moreover, the atoms in your left hand probably come from a different star than those from your right hand. We are all literally star children and our bodies are made of stardust. Well, there you are. So this is intimacy, uh, the core thing of Zen couched physically, but the matter cuts deeper than just uh, a physical account like that. There's a wonderful... Uh, I've been collecting environmental cards and having a lot of fun. Uh, and there's a lot to choose from, by the way. Um, but this one comes from the Bluecliff record. It's uh, uh, Pai Chang's Wild Duck. Uh, Matsu is the teacher and Pai Chang is the student here. And they're taking a walk. And they saw a wild duck flying by. What does that ask the teacher? A wild duck said the student. Where did it go? asked the teacher. It flew away, said the student. The teacher twisted the student's nose and the student cried out in pain. Why, it didn't fly away at all, said the teacher. Ah! And the duck gives itself Zen tends to avoid abstract accounts of the nature of reality, preferring to concentrate on things as they are, rain as rain, sorrow as sorrow, pain as pain, as well as the wind drying, the washing on the line. Just, just this, just this, just this. However, there is an ancient image of, uh, the ancient image of Indra's net uh, from Huayan Buddhism, shows reality from the perspective of enlightened mind. 
and it's compatible with a Zen account of, the nature, uh, of nature and our place in it. So according to the net of Indra, which, um, which Nick Arnold uh, used in uh, his talk uh, fairly recently, all these lights were, uh, were on and reflecting in all of the windows, and it was the most marvellous effect, um, giving a, a whole sense of the net of Indra, as I'm about to describe it. Tonight it's just a description. Um, So, <clears throat> reality is conveyed as a multidimensional net. At each point where the strands of the net meet, there is a jewel corresponding to an event, being or person. Each of these unique jewels reflects the light that is reflected in the infinity of jewels around it. And each of these jewels in turn reflects the light from all the jewels around them, and so on forever. In this way, each jewel or each particular entity or event, including each person or creature, ultimately reflects and expresses the radiance of the entire universe. In this vision of reality, each unique being reflects the whole, and the whole is reflected in each unique being. Unique is important here. Uh, every jewel is cut differently. Some of us are old, some of us are young. Some of us are male, some of us are female. We have different aspirations, different work, different lives. Each jewel is unique. In this way, mountains and rivers, rocks and stars are revealed as our intimate nature, while at the same time each of us and each of them remain singular and unique. The the boundless aspect and the singular and unique aspect are not opposed to each other and neither of them exists alone. They are completely mutually dependent and indeed at the deepest level no other than each other. They are met in your least action, opening your eyes in the to the morning light or closing your eyes to sleep last thing at night. The simplest of action uh, conveys them. But the Zen path is not abstract and theoretical. That's Huayan Buddhism. But it's primarily practical. Along with meditation, work is an important part of the way of Zen. In the old monasteries of China, this meant work in nature. Monasteries were self-sufficient which meant cultivating rice, milking cows and lighting fires for cooking, as well as cooking itself. And the Tenzo role was immensely important. It was a senior position uh, in the monastery. Apart from the necessity of work, the acts of hoeing, planting, harvesting, cutting wood, drawing water, sifting and cooking rice, all provided a variety of means for uniting with the object of attention, 
for providing opportunities for awakening. In this way, Zen culture developed in nature as well as in the meditation hall and the kitchen. The intimate connection between work and spirituality, the sacredness of food and cooking links Zen and Aboriginal spirituality very deeply. We are utterly intimate with nature and nature with us. This means that we treat nature and humanity within it with care and respect. The care and respect we would or should accord our own body. This means at the very least knowing our place and taking care of the environment as its custodians so that future generations can inherit it for their sustenance and as a source of inspiration for their lives so that they can inherit it as their life. We are in our own small way custodians of country, culture and family, all of which come down to us through ancestral sources that we often don't know much about and including generations that we can't see and know. Uh, Ancestry.com notwithstanding. Um, I think that in various ways, including recycling, mulching, uh, careful disposing of what is personal, uh, we can give meaning to custodianship in our own lives. Um, but I, what I mean with the disposal of what is personal, I mean, um, my partner Antoinette says, don't throw that in the skip. These are notes for poems or, um, you know, things that have been uh, creative work, which is just uh, stuff which um, which is now uh, no longer useful. She sa says, um, let's mulch it, we'll put it in the ground. Um, this is much better than putting it, for instance, through the, um, through the system of picking up uh, the council uh, rubbish, because there is, a, there is an intimacy and privacy to a lot of our lives. I think disposing of computers is, also relates um, to this, of finding appropriate ways to do it. So uh, Antoinette uh, mulches it and puts it in the garden. That feels like a really, really good way to go. And the poet Andrew Burke says, I don't think of myself as a poet. He says, I regard myself as passing on the poetic tradition to future poets. Um, but he's a very good poet. <laughs> all this is important and I think we all play a role in this. The second of the big themes and which starts to move us closer um, to activism, saving the many beings. At the conclusion of the evening we chant great vows for all, um, the four bodhisattvas vows. The first of these is, though the many beings are numberless, I vow to save them. This vow is fundamental to the bodhisattva way which in turn is foundational for activism within a Buddhist framework. What do we mean by saving the many beings? Well, in the first instance, saving means actively including them in our heart and mind. When we do this, we allow the world in 
and correspondingly, we let go of our self-centred concerns and preoccupations. Furthermore, we do what we can to help suffering beings. Everything, everyone calls out to us as us. Can we be there for them? What can we do to help? What would help here? The opportunities for service uh, are legion. With global warming, the tally of life forms that are under threat of extinction is immense. We are living through what is widely known as the sixth great extinction. A third of all amphibian species are at risk. A fifth of the globe's 5,500 known mammals are classified as endangered, threatened or vulnerable. The current extinction rate for birds may be faster than any recorded across the 150 million years of avian evolutionary history. And David Loy writes, it's becoming more difficult to overlook the fact that our world is beset by interacting ecological, economic and social crises. Climate breakdown, species extinction, a dysfunctional economic system, corporate domination of government and overpopulation. It's a critical time in human history and the collective decisions we have to make during the next few years will set the course of events for generations to come. He goes on, yet the more we learn about our situation, the more overwhelmed and discouraged many of us become. The problems are so enormous and intimidating that we don't know where to start. We end up feeling powerless, even, even paralysed. He continues, for those inspired by Buddhist teachings, an important issue is whether Buddhism can help us respond to these crises. As Paul Hawken uh, points out in a book called Blessed Unrest, there are already a vast number of large and small organisations working for peace, social justice and sustainability. At least a million, and perhaps over two million, he estimates. The question is whether a Buddhist perspective has something distinctive to offer this movement. There's a marvellous quote by Gary Snyder which touches this point. The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into essential nature, self-nature. We need both. We need both personal and social transformation uh, so that we can respond fully to the Buddha's concern to end suffering. The Buddha emphasised that all he had to teach was suffering and how to end it. Uh, for David Loy, this implies that social transformation is also necessary in order to address the structural and institutionalised suffering perpetuated by those who benefit from an inequitable social order. Greed, ill will and delusion are not just personal, though we conventionally think of them like that. Um, it's really important here, I, I need to say, which I meant to say at the beginning, um, 
Wisdom Academy put on a course by David Loy. Um, I can't get the correct title of it. Um, the Dharma of Social and Ecological Engagement, which I, I actually did. So many of the ideas for tonight's talk are due to uh, David's absolutely inspiring uh, account. And one of the things he really stresses is that, you know, he calls it the greed, uh, the three poisons, greed, ill will, and delusion. Uh, we call them greed, hatred, and ignorance. But the, the other titling is also very interesting. Um, that these are not just personal things. When we do the precepts, of course, we take the vows uh, personally. But he sees these as uh, manifesting institutionally on a very, very large scale. And uh, a lot of the course is concerned with the analysing about how this actually comes to be. And uh, I'm looking forward to unpacking some of that and, and presenting it. Um, So he writes, is there something specific within the Buddhist tradition that can bring these two types of transformation, uh, personal transformational and social transformation, together in a new model of activism connecting inner and outer practice? Uh, inner practice meaning meditation, outer practice meaning uh, practice in the world, uh, activity, uh, activism. And then there's a wonderful line, enter the Bodhisattva. This is the way it's presented. <laughs> so in terms of the traditional definition, the Bodhisattva chooses not to enter the state of perfect peace, nirvana, but instead remains in samsara, cyclic existence to help all sentient beings end their suffering and reach enlightenment. The spirit of the Bodhisattva is, instead of asking, uh, how can I get out of this situation, the Bodhisattva asks, how can I contribute to make the situation better? Today, more than ever, we need to understand the Bodhisattva path as a spiritual archetype that offers a new vision for human possibility. This beautiful line, um, wisdom and compassion are the two wings of the Buddhist path and we need both to fly. Uh, wisdom is realising that there is no me uh, separate from the rest of the world. Yasutani, when we indulge that, it's uh, what Yasutani calls the fundamental delusion of humanity. I am in here and you are out there. What about the reverse? <laughs> you are in here and I am out there. Too tricky? Maybe. So wisdom is realising there is no me separate from the rest of the world and compassion is putting that realisation into practice. Okay. So this is not an argument for abandoning meditation and simply uh, getting to work in the world. Um, one of the things I like about David Loy's vision is that these two aspects are completely integrated. 
uh, although not a Buddhist, uh, Nisargadatta made the point, this point very well. He wrote, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these two, my life turns. It's beautiful, isn't it? This vision of socially engaged Buddhism is to help develop an awakened society that is socially just and ecologically sustainable. It seeks to open up new perspectives and possibilities that challenge us to transform ourselves and our societies more profoundly. Bodhisattva activism has some distinctive characteristics. Buddhism emphasises interdependence, um, as expressed by, we're all in this together. Uh, Eken Roshi was asked, what is the essence of Buddhism? He said, nothing lasts and we're all in it together. So, for David Lloyd, Bodhisattva activism has distinctive characters. Another one of these is that the path is geared to delusion rather than evil. Although we can give sense to saying that you know some corporations are evil, uh, it is for the sake of change, uh, and I think from the, a Buddhist perspective, is better to ground one's objection uh, as delusion than evil. That position implies not only non-violence, and violence is usually self-defeating anyway, but a politics based on love, um, something, something far more intimate than reactive anger, uh, that anger that separates us and them. In a very, very deep sense, all that we object to is no other than our true face and our true nature. Uh, when we indulge um, in reactive anger, it mostly doesn't help. Which is not to say that anger is inappropriate. Uh, anger also drives and gives energy to causes. But how we deal with others makes a profound difference as well. All this is open to a lot of debate and a lot of discussion and I realise I'm moving quickly through territory which we can explore in a considerable depth and should explore. Joanna Macy outlines three types of ecological activism. Defending what is threatened, the first. Analysing structural causes and creating new alternatives. If there are two million um, 
groups dealing with ecological issues throughout the world, there are wonderful opportunities for analysing structural causes and creating new alternatives. And getting connected on those networks would seem important for that. The third is working for a shift in consciousness. This is very, very rich. Uh, we will bring different skills, inclination and character to the way, to the activist way. And there are so many ways in which we can serve. To sit and devote ourselves to realising our true nature is a wonderful thing and surely touches not only our own lives but those around us. We also vest our realisation in serving the environment and culture in which we live. However, it may not be a great idea to wait until you're fully awakened to pitch in. Um, we sit long and deep and at the same time we engage with the world and awaken in the midst of activity, including activist activity. So. It's maybe tempting to see it as a sequence. You have to sit. You sit for for twenty years here and get fully and deeply enlightened. Then you start to involve. That could be quite late in the the things. I think it's better to get involved and get going, and also sit a lot. David Deloy writes: the basic problem in our society is not rich and powerful bad people but institutionalised structures of collective greed, aggression and delusion. The Bodhisattva's pragmatism, her not being dogmatic, can help cut through the ideological quarrels that have weakened so many progressive groups. And Buddhism's emphasis on skilful means uh, cultivates the creative imagination. This is really interesting. It's, it's, creative imagination is really, really important in terms, it, it's a necessary attribute if we're to construct a healthier way of living together on the earth and work out a way to get there. I think he writes very honestly, he said, yet those attributes do not get at the most important contribution of the Bodhisattva in these difficult times when we often feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the challenge and are tempted to despair. He asks, what is the Bodhisattva's response? He gives this wonderful quote. To quote the US Army Corps Corps of Engineers, their motto, he says, the difficult, they say, the difficult we do immediately, the impossible will have to take a little longer. And then he goes on. Someone, according to the classic formulation, the Bodhisattva takes a vow to help liberate all living beings. And then he goes on. Someone who has volunteered for such an unachievable task is not going to be intimidated by present crises, no matter how hopeless they may appear. That is because the Bodhisattva practices on both levels, inner and outer which enables one to engage in goal-directed behaviour without attachment to results. 
as T.S. Eliot put it, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. This is not to suggest that when activism is effective that you can't be pleased by outcomes and results. But in many instances, it's, it would seem that the results may be a long way off and beyond our own lifetimes in some instances. The Bodhisattva's job is to do the best he or she can without knowing what the consequences will be. Have we already passed ecological tipping points and human civilization is doomed? Well, we don't know. Yet rather than being intimidated, the Bodhisattva embraces don't know mind because Buddhist practice opens us up to the awesome mystery of an impermanent world where everything is changing, whether or not we notice it. You know, the Bodhisattva, he or she, uh, realises the boundless vastness of true nature and comes forth from there to save sentient beings. Um, not attached to her realisation. In the midst of all this, which is very large and very serious and it's also important to have a sense of humour about what you are doing. Uh, a mark of maturity in the Zen way is a pronounced sense of humour uh, and a lightness, uh, even in difficult circumstances. And a little bit of madness also helps. So, the way helps to cultivate that too, you know. As the Heart Sutra emphasises, forms are empty and emptiness is form. Emptiness is not a place to dwell that is free from form. It is experienced only in the impermanent forms it takes, the forms that constitute our lives and our world. And the group that we have here, the Sangha that we have here, uh, provides... Um, that darkness that rolls back forever, that it is an opportunity to awaken um, to that boundlessness. Um, it is also a refuge where nowhere in the world is actually a refuge, but where you can return in the midst of uh, the stresses and the difficulties and the immense frustration of trying to create change in the world and deepen and mature and also find you know, find some some rest, some letting go uh, which enables us to come forth and uh, contribute to making change in the world. Uh, what we have here as Sangha is, is precious uh, for that and uh, yeah, finds uh, its home in the midst of uh, profound activity of creating change. Thank you, everyone.